Welcome to the brightest audience in the country. I'm Fred Williams, host of Real Science Radio. And I'm Doug McBurney, host of the Weekly Worldview. It's good to be back with you, Fred. Yeah, we're going to do part two of our show on our review of Professor Ellis Hughes' book, 20 Reasons to Question Plate Tectonics. So That's right. We're be- going to start with subduction. But before that, Fred, we do have a couple of science headlines. Yeah. So the first one is... Fossils suggest early primates lived in a once swampy Arctic. And that was from about a week ago, Doug. And this sounds like another reason for us to talk about the hydroplate theory. That's right, because this is suggestive of Walt Brown's big role, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you'll notice the article, they have to appease to pushing their worldview of evolution, millions of years of evolving, that says early primates. Okay, early ones. Every time we find (laughs) stuff in the fossil record, they look like creatures of today. So their fossils buried, these primates were buried likely during the flood. And so what's interesting about this one, and it was reported in the January 25th PLOS-1, and they talk- yeah, so I think I think you're supposed to say that with a Harvard accent. Last <laughs> one, one. I believe how it's pronounced. <laughs> we don't we don't spend a lot of time in the secular journals, so a lot of times when we refer back to them, we've forgotten how to pronounce yeah, their names. Exactly. So, <laughs> but yeah, this was January 25th, right? Yep. And they talk about between frigid temperatures, limited plant growth, and months of perpetual darkness. Living in the modern Arctic isn't easy. Well, that's very true. So what are we doing finding primates? They live in the tropic areas, right? Yeah, and the somehow, jungle. And they, I think of the jungle. Yeah, and they mentioned in this article that the Arctic was once a swampy area. Now, you'll get climate enthusiasts, you know, your climate warming or whatever the climate change. They want to say that yeah. the climate was a different environment back then, and even creationists will latch onto that. But Walt Brown has the best explanation of why things are so different in the Arctic than they were, say, what we find in the fossil record, like this article here describes. I would recommend, actually, Brian Nichols' part five of his hydroplate theory. He goes through all the excellent explanations of why we find things like these primates that are in the Arctic Circle. We also find woolly mammoths. We find forests, Doug. You know, like in Alaska, they drill for oil, and then they talk about this fossilized forest of trees. And these trees, yeah. they can't grow in the Arctic. What are they doing near the Arctic Circle, frozen and fossilized? And what's interesting about these trees is you can't make the argument that it was just a better climate back then. Because these trees will not grow if they don't get enough sunlight. So if you're up at these really high latitudes, these trees won't grow. So the hydroplate theory provides really compelling evidence. And there's multiple lines of evidence that the earth actually rolled because of the shift of mass that's going on with like the melting of the core and, you know, the formation of the Himalaya mountains and the the majority of the mass, there's a lot of mass where the Himalayan mountains were. And so as the earth is spinning, we spin on our axis. We all know that. And so the earth is spinning. And during this event, 
all that mass that's kind of centering around the Himalayas, it causes the earth while it's spinning to start rolling. And as the rolling is occurring, we've got other mountains forming. And so eventually you get an equilibrium. So the Himalayas don't roll all the way to the equator, but the earth did roll. And we've got evidence for that roll. We've got like the 90 degree east ridge. It's this uh, long break of a line. You can see it on the globe. It's just south of the Himalayas. There's scientific evidence that you can explain using physics and knowledge in mechanical engineering of how this rip or this tear, why it would form there. You can look at the length of it and calculate how much of a roll the earth had. Well, anyways, with this roll, that explains a ton of things, including these primates that lived once in this swampy Arctic that this article is talking about. Again, I think the best reference, you could go to Walt Brown's book. It's explained very well there. But if, you, if you're like me and you like visual way to see these things, go to Brian Nichols' YouTube video on the hydroplate theory, part five, and you can learn more about this. It's, it's so cool. And again, Walt Brown's theory is the only one that explains how this can happen. You've got herds of, I can't remember if they were cows or what, they're going across a river and they just freeze suddenly in this river. So how do you explain that? Rapid freezing, it's all explained by the hydroplate theory. So, hey, Doug, we always like talking about the hydroplate theory, and we haven't for a while. So these news items, these recent news items, remind us about how powerful his theory is at explaining this stuff. Yes, and also reminds us of the late, great Bob Enyart's axiom that all scientists work for Walt Brown, because even right here in the PLOS One article, they say that these forests that these ancient primates lived in these forests haven't always been confined to their present location. Now, their explanation involves millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years and climate and all this, so that they're hitting all around the bullseye, but they are correct in that the forests haven't always been in their present location. And it's, again, explained in part five of Brian Nichols' outstanding YouTube video series on the hydroplate theory. People should definitely... Check that out if you want to find out about the big roll. But now we want to get to, to do we want to get to subduction yet? Or wait, we before do. we get to subduction. But no, before we get there, Rob Brown will be speaking tonight at the Rocky Mountain Creation Fellowship at Littleton Baptist Church. And where do folks go to get the details on that, Fred? Yeah, well, thanks for remembering that. Yeah, tonight, I, I can't believe that that slipped my mind. Tonight, Rob Brown is at... Littleton Baptist Church, and you can find out more about it at youngearth.org. And if you can't make it tonight, it's better if you come because then you get to meet Dr. Rob Brown. He also works for Walt Brown. He also was Walt Brown's son, so he probably had to take out the trash. So he literally worked for Walt <laughs> Brown. <laughs> so Rob Brown will be there tonight. If you can't make it in person, we will be streaming that live on YouTube on the Rocky Mountain Creation Fellowship YouTube channel. The link to that live stream is also on youngearth.org prominently at the top of the page. So very much looking forward to that. He's going to talk about trans-Neptunian objects and how they support the hydroplate theory. So anyways, make sure you make it to that. So Doug, we're getting back to 20 reasons to question plate tectonics by Professor Ellis Hughes, and we were on Reason number two, we've got we got to stream through this one and the remaining 18 on this show. And we were talking yes. about there's no adequate explanation for how subduction starts. Right. And subduction is this idea that one plate dives underneath another plate. 
right? Yeah. And the diving plates, these are the whole theory hinges on this idea of subduction because it's the diving plates that explain what causes continental drift, right? And so the problem is how does a plate first begin to dive? So how does this massive piece of the Earth's crust, the Earth's lithosphere, push its way down through 5 miles, 10 miles, 20 miles of solid rock? And, and, and Dr. Hughes asks the question, the simple question, is this physically possible? And so when, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I know what rock is like and I know what 10 miles is like, and I can't get past that question. It just doesn't seem physically possible to me. Yeah, and Professor Hughes shares that in the book. These diagrams are in here, and these equations, if you really want to see what the math says, it's just there's no way this can happen. And Brian Nickel does a great job of explaining it in his hydroplate videos. But Professor Hughes notes also in one of the diagrams that's provided in the book Granite is not infinitely strong. It has limitations. The maximum height of a granite cliff is about five miles. Under the five-mile mark, granite will become like putty and flow sideways. This would halt subduction, right. among many other things. So really good data in this part of the book. Like you said, it's, a, it's crucial to plate tectonics. But the idea that you have one plate going underneath another, the physics do not work. And the book does a really good job of showing that. So Right, Fred, and listen to the here's another quick one. The oceanic crust, right, has an average density of about three grams per cubic centimeter. And the underlying asthenosphere is estimated to have a density of about 3.3 grams per cubic centimeter. So less dense substances are found on top of more dense substances, which that seems logical to me. You know, you think of ice floating on a glass of water, right? Yeah. Good and point. so how is it that this less dense material magically, mysteriously turns and starts diving under the more dense material? Anyway, granite is one of the most studied rocks in the world. We know its density, its chemical composition, its, its compressive strength. We know an awful lot about it. And we know how much pressure a piece of granite can take before it cracks. And we know when it's under pressure, deep underground, just like you said, over five miles, it becomes almost like a putty. And so anyway, that's just a few of the examples of why subduction. Well, subduction should have subducted the whole theory at that meeting back in 1970, whatever. I don't know if everybody there was on a magical mystery tour or they were all riding the bus. I don't know what <laughs> they was just going got on. off the bus from Woodstock. <laughs> Something like that, because <laughs> I, I, I just don't know how they got past that, but they did Fred. They yep. got past it despite that and 18 more reasons. Yeah. And so reason number three is the Philippine plate has a noticeable lack of divergence. So this is kind of an opposite to the problem we mentioned last show, which was on page 11 where they kind of created a plate boundary. Well, here they wish they could erase these uh, boundaries because the Philippine plate that has all kinds of problems with going one direction or the other, you really need to get the book to read through that one and see what's going on. I'm going to skip to the next one. Reason number four, the Pacific Ocean doesn't have enough distinct spreading centers. 
even though it covers a large section of the globe. I mean, if you look at a globe, the Pacific's pretty dominant. And there's just not enough places for spreading centers. Right. And one of the original theorists involved in plate tectonics, H.W. Menard, he was aware of this lack of divergent zones in the Pacific. And he knew that this would make the theory less viable. So in 1964, he proposed that there had been this ancient spreading ridge in the middle of the Pacific and that it had just basically subsided over millions and millions of years. And so now you could just barely see it, but trust me, it was there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And they called it, of course, they call it Darwin. They call it Darwin rise. Darwin's right smack in the middle of the Pacific. And guess what? This thing went unchallenged until 1989 as mentioned in the book. But then, you know, Christian Smoot, who was that guy who, who was with the Navy for many years, and he plotted the surface of the ocean for the U.S. Navy. Oh, yeah. It was classified information. Well, he was a plate tectonics proponent. He was a big fan. And then he did all this work for the U.S. Navy, and he's like, plate tectonics is dumb. He calls it uh, <laughs> plate baloney or something to that effect. So he's become a big <laughs> critic because none of the stuff he saw matched the evidence. And this is one of the examples from this reason that the Pacific Ocean doesn't have distinct spreading centers. It's this Darwin rise as an example. He just looked at the data and it's like, you know, this doesn't work for them. It's not there. They were wrong. As you say, like after you beat somebody in ping pong, next. So, <laughs> and the next one is reason five. If subduction has happened, we should find a huge volume of sediments that have been scraped off as the plate subducted. Instead, we find shallow, relatively undisturbed sediments. And what a great point. There should be tons of sediments forming if subduction is occurring. You got this plate going underneath another one. There's a lot of scraping. That should be scraping up a lot of dirt. Yes, and I thought this was one of Dr. Hughes' preeminent evidences here against plate tectonics and something that somebody like me, the layman, can easily understand if you have a plate subducting, diving under another plate, whatever's on top of the plate going down should get scraped off by the plate staying on top, right? And Dr. Hughes has a graphic in the book. And if I'm not mistaken, this graphic was actually created by Brian Nickel, the author of the Hydroplate YouTube channel, Hydroplate Theory Videos. And it shows how much sediment there should be that that should have been scraped off. And the amount of sediment that's missing is taller than Mount Everest. (laughs) It's just this massive (laughs) amount of sediment that should have accumulated along the edges of all these subducting plates. Anyway, very easy to understand, easy to see in the visual. A great graphic from Brian Nickel. Yeah. The, the The pile of sediment. If you put it all in one place, would be taller than the world's biggest mountains. Yeah, you and, know. And by it, the way, that's based on a relatively conservative estimate of how much sediment should have been scraped. Yeah, exactly. And you know, in personal correspondence with Professor Hughes, it was noted that PhDs they tend to think in two dimensions. You know, they never think in three. You know, you look at a lot of the pictures that they do, and it reminded me of Spock telling Kirk. Khan thinks in two dimensions. You know, that was the end of the second Star Trek movie. Bad reference. But oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he tends to think in 2D. And so Kirk lowers the ship and does a 3D attack. Anyways, these guys, <laughs> these guys, they think in 2D. And then in the same correspondence, Professor Hughes mentioned, it would be like giving a kid a cone 
to push sand on the beach because it's based yeah. on these drawings where they have these seamounts that are going under the subducted plate. It's on the plate. It's subducting. It's got seamounts. And somehow this is helping with the problem with the missing sediments. It's just, it's fantasy land. I mean, you can oh, look yeah, at that, this and you the, see the problems. Yeah, yeah. That's the picture on, on page 24 where you have a mountain of sand somehow being pushed under, <laughs> being pushed underneath the plate. And you just look at the picture and you're thinking, well, even a third grader would be able to see the problem here. That's just not physically possible. I guess they just shove all the sediment under the plate and ask you not to think about it any further. That seems to be the deal. Exactly. And in the book, there's references to scientists who realized this was a serious problem, you know, when they were first pushing plate tectonics, but their objections were eventually ignored. They got their paradigm pushed and there's like, okay, going forward, we're going to do plate tectonics. And if you don't accept it, you're not getting funding. You might lose tenure. Who knows what, you know, it's just, this right. is the way the scientific community works. So reason number yes. six Seamounts, which are extinct underwater volcanoes, are too abundant and are often found in locations that don't align with plate tectonics theory. And so the book provides graphics they're and all images. all over, all over the Pacific Ocean, yeah, everywhere. They're all over the place, even the Indian Ocean, everywhere. There's way too many seamounts. So I That's encourage right. you to get the book. If, if you see any seamounts in the Pacific, these are not the droids you're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. Just move along. <laughs> yep. And then one of my favorites, just because I had done quite a bit of looking into this next one, reason number seven, seismic tomography has not shown unambiguous images of subducted plates. Uh -huh. And so there's an image that creationists love to use that are uh, geologists that support plate tectonics, and it's this P-wave tomography, and it shows a really nice-looking subductive plate in this image. It was actually generated back in 1998 and they play this kind of sleight of hand. Now I'm not saying the creationists do, but they've fallen for the sleight of hand where they use this P wave technology where they're sending waves. They look at waves that go through the earth and they measure how fast they're going because, you know, waves travel different speeds depending on the different composition of the material that they're going through. And so they right. came up with this really nice looking subducting plate and they shade it blue so that it makes it look like it's cold. Yet it has nothing to do with hot or cold. These waves going through rocks, it's just the speed that the wave's going through them. There's a lot of different things that can cause that wave to either go faster or slower. And plus your modeling's got to be correct. It's you know, interpreting this data. And we've seen that a lot of times the modeling's wrong. Most of the time when like the oil and gas industry uses tomography, their success rate is still pretty low. I mean, it's, it's making some progress, but it's still low. Professor Ellis has a section dedicated to this. Highly encourage people to, again, get the book and you'll see what image I'm talking about. We can try to put this image on the website in the show summary. We'll try to make sure we oh, get yeah, that we'll, image we'll up there. We'll include this one because this is one of the iconic images related to plate tectonics. And it does, to the untrained eye... I mean, it looks very clean, and if you say, well, obviously it looks like it's going under, yes, well, maybe it's not nearly as clear as as you might think. And uh, Dr. Hughes does a great job, by the way, not just uh, showing the picture, but describing all the different things that could be said to describe this picture, not related to this fantastical idea that this giant slab of granite has turned under and is just creeping under Tonga and Fiji there. 
Exactly. And I'm hoping I have my paper on modeling approved for the ICC conference. So we're still waiting to get word on that as editors look at that. So I found several quotes from scientists that have looked at these images, and a lot of it is just marketing. One geophysicist said this, some end users put more confidence in attractive images in a way similar to customers' reaction to an advertising campaign, you know, set very well. And yeah. at some point, my modeling paper, hopefully it gets accepted by the ICC, but one way or the other, hopefully be able to share that and maybe do a show on it. In fact, Doug, just to segue real quick, we're going to do a show on your paper, The Moon, coming up in the next few weeks. Looking forward to that. So yes, before yes, we get- in fact, Fred, Fred, I think when we were talking about it in the in our show prep, Fred said, yeah, I want to get to the moon as soon as possible. <laughs> and I thought, hey, I think there's uh, there's some activity in that area, Fred. You might be able to go to the moon. In fact, if you were Jeff Bezos' girlfriend, you might be able to go to the moon, Fred, to actually go to the moon. Well, I assure you I'm not but, hey, his girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> but, we're Fred, we're going to run out of time. Benioff zones. That's reason right? number eight. Benioff zones. Hugo Benioff, real quick, he discovered how to use seismic data to determine exactly where the epicenter of an earthquake occurs and how to plot the epicenter over time to show fault planes. And so another image that has been basically misinterpreted and misrepresented to show plate movement and seafloor spreading and all this other stuff. Yeah, and the data that's coming in isn't supporting this hypothesis. And again, that's reason number eight. Reason number nine is the arc and cusp pattern around the ring of fire and along trench zones creates an impossible geometry for plate subduction. Now, this is one of my personal favorites. So when they talk about arc and cusp, that's where you've got these boundaries that imagine the shape of a bowl and how it's rounded. And then suddenly it turns the other way. So that would be like an arc and then a cusp. So how are plates going to subduct underneath this? And you could try to imagine, like Brian Nickel has in his video, pulling a sheet over a table that is the shape of, say, kind of circular in a sense. Like, say, pulling yeah. a sheet over a really big bowl. And another example of like using tinfoil. And when you do this, you're going to have cracks form. There's, there's going to be a tensile region that should tear. But there's no tears that we can see anywhere. And even with right. their tomography that they do beneath your surface, that you know, it's definitely not completely reliable. There's a lot of issues with it. But even that data, it doesn't show any tearing whatsoever. It's a huge problem for uh, plate tectonics. I mentioned it on CRSNet, and really nobody can explain it. They should be there, but they're not. That's a serious problem. Yes. And there's a couple of great pictures on page 33 of the book that show the Pacific Basin and how there should be all these wrinkles in the seafloor based on the tension. And, and, and this is an overarching statement that I would make about plate tectonics is that the observable evidence is the problem. The closer you look at the observable geologic and geographic reality, the more problems you have with plate tectonics. And this is one of the biggest ones the, and the pictures on page 33 of Dr. Hughes' book are just phenomenal in making it very easy to understand. A lot easier than on radio, by the way, Fred. Oh, exactly. And then reason number 10, in personal correspondence, Professor Hughes mentioned this is one that he had come up with. If the floor of the entire Atlantic Ocean was created by the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, 
Why doesn't it have the same or similar texture as the ridge? Shouldn't we see a series of parallel ridges across the seafloor? Now this one, I'm gonna go ahead and leave it to the audience to get the book and, and look at the image. It's kind of difficult to cover that on radio. But that's yeah, one. but it, this is definitely one of the most easy to understand. Why is there just one ridge? Why isn't there all these other ridges that have been there for a million years, 10 million years? How many hundreds of millions of years? Please. Yeah. And then reason 11, the uneven topography of the lithosphere slash asthenosphere interface makes it impossible for continental plates to move. So he shows an image of the lithosphere adjacent to the asthenosphere. Just imagine it's rigid i mean there's ups and downs and turns and curves yeah just, How could just these take things... two egg cartons two egg cartons oh, there you go flip them upside down and put the bumps against if you can find an egg carton and, and put <laughs> and try to rub them try to rub them back and forth against each other and they're going to lock into place right well the same thing's going on with the the surface of the earth and the roots of the mountains right in fact we have a quote from the book from arthur meyerhoff he wrote in 1996, today's geologists and geophysicists tend to treat pieces of the Earth's crust like a room full of furniture, objects that can be pushed around at will into whatever configuration is required to satisfy a particular model. Unfortunately, the Earth's crust is not so easily manipulated if one is faithful to physical laws. And there, again, is the problem. Physical laws, those are also a big problem for plate tectonics. Uh, reason number 12, the rocks on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge should be the youngest rocks in the Atlantic, but there's an awful lot of data that suggests they're not. Yeah, plate tectonics proponents will use this argument. They'll say, well, we've got these rocks that are younger near the ridge and they get older as you go out. Well, that's actually not the case. That doesn't fit as well as they believe because there's lots of contradictory dates that we find and they just seem to be dismissed. Oh, they're just anomalies. You know, how right. often do we hear that? They just dismiss it. Kind of like if they have a date they don't like, they say, well, there's excess argon in that radiometric date. And they just throw it out. <laughs> so okay. lots of excess argon problems with their dating. And that same thing happens here, documented well in this book. You've got paleontologists that will even argue against plate tectonics because the, the fossils don't match like they claim they do as far as the dating goes. If you need more on that, just email me at Real Science Radio. I use that as one of my examples when I talk about plate tectonics, which I did last night. I'm in Fort Morgan. So, oh, and again, just remember tonight, Dr. Rob Brown at Rocky Mountain Creation Fellowship at Littleton Baptist. It starts at 7 p.m. Youngearth.org. Yeah. Okay. Definitely so, check that out. And speaking of things that don't fit, reason 13, Bullard's fit doesn't fit. That's the famous idea that all the continents can fit together quite nicely they don't fit together so nicely they don't fit together nicely at all you have to rip out huge chunks of central america yeah you have to delete central america that seems to be a problem yeah and you have to grow africa there's all kinds of things you have to do this thing does not work that fit was never right they tried to show how it worked with a model back in the early 1960s it doesn't work but what does work is these continents do fit pretty well with, if you look at like the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, where oh, continents- Oh, they do fit fairly yeah, well, yeah. Where they would spread from there. You know, you get the North and South America heading West, and then you've got Europe and Africa heading East, and that fits really yeah. well. And that's what the hydroplate theory points out. 
So then exactly. reason 14, Doug, is fracture zones along the ridges are said to show the direction of seafloor spreading in the past. As we map more of the ocean floor, we find many fracture zones and fault lines that challenge this hypothesis. And this is where you get back to Christian Smoot, the Navy guy who's a secular scientist who believed in plate tectonics until he mapped the ocean floor. And he's like, oh, nothing was there that they expected. <laughs> right. And so plate tectonics is wrong. That was his right. conclusion. Another problem with plate tectonics is if a guy actually looks at it, that becomes a big problem, which Smoot <laughs> did. Yep. Another great graphic on the book, page 39, of these cracks and fractures, and it it's just obvious it doesn't make any sense with the theory. And then reason 15 is that triple junctions are hard to explain. And what this is, oh, yeah. these are any point where three tectonic plates meet, and the book shows one of the areas where you have a triple junction. So you've got plates moving in different directions, and that is so pretty much impossible to explain. And the book gives examples of why this is a problem. Reason 16, yep, yep. plate tectonics doesn't take into account mega trends. And this was another right. one by Christian Smoot that he mentions. And that one, there's an image on it that you can look at. I'd like to probably just skip through that one, Doug. People, again, can get the book. Reason 17. Yeah, yeah. This is a good one. Reason 17, magma is a compressible fluid. We've discovered magma is compressible. And it sinks yep. when below 200 kilometers. This means that mantle convection and mantle plumes, they're flat impossible. I mean, you cannot explain. It's you not, can't get it. it. It won't work. Right. And just Pretty simple. Yeah. And I've used the example before. Imagine you've got a rubber ducky in like a swimming pool and you push down on this rubber ducky and then you let it go. So you go down like, you know, I don't know, two feet. You let go. The thing plops up and it plops out up into the surface of the water. Well, if you take that rubber ducky down far enough, the pressure around it will be great enough where the density match doesn't work anymore, and that thing will actually sink. And so that's the same with magma. Below 200 kilometers, the magma will actually sink. It will not rise. And yet you've got images in like Britannica and even, unfortunately, with some creationist organizations showing magmas rising from well below 200 kilometers when we know that physically it's not possible the laws of science don't allow it to occur. Right. And this is very well established, very well established. And you would think that such an enormous problem would take out a theory or take out a model. That would be the end of it. But Dr. Hughes in the book has a quote from Warren Hamilton from the geophysics department at the Colorado School of Mines, spent over 40 years at the U.S. Geological Survey, he was a plate tectonics advocate, but based on this idea of mantle plumes, he realized it was simply not possible. And he started to say something about it, but I mean, it was a very career limiting move. And there's a quote from him in the book. He says, for current paradigms, this is a Warren Hamilton, Colorado School of Mines, U.S. Geological Survey. For current paradigms, evaluation is not necessary. For challengers... Proof must be overwhelming. Appalling papers in support of mantle plumes are now being published in major journals, and suppression of dissent is common. And he goes on, again, back to the idea that scientists are somehow above all of the other foibles of humanity is, uh, is a mistaken idea. And the acceptance of plate tectonics is uh, more evidence. And then uh, reason 18, Fred, the cola super deep borehole 
Yeah. You remember this one was drilled in Russia back in the 1970s? So they dr drilled it for 20-some-odd years? Yeah. Well, I'll just leave it at that. Again, observing the evidence from actually drilling into the earth becomes a big problem at the Kola Super Deep Borehole. That's reason number 18. Yeah, and it didn't fit the tomography they did before then. So getting back to tomography, it shows that right. you, know, you can't just rely on that stuff because they did not find what they expected, what the tomography showed them what should happen with these models that they run and they create these images kind of like when you do an MRI scan or a CAT scan. You know, with CAT scans and MRI scans, we've got a way to validate that the images are correct. And when they're not, you can work on the technology to improve it. So here, they were completely wrong on what their tomography showed. That was reason 18. Reason 19, if the Earth has been recycling its plates in and out of the mantle for billions of years, shouldn't the lithosphere and mantle be more homogenous by now? Good right, question. That makes sense, right? If it's all been mixing and it's it's all been just subducting and spreading, it should be mixing together by now, at least at least more than we observe. Yeah. And then finally, reason number 20, even though magnetic anomalies helped plate tectonics theory to gain acceptance, there are many problems surrounding them. And Doug, this is probably one of the more technical reasons in the book, but yeah. there, it documents a lot of the problems with trying to use magnetic data to support plate tectonics. There's a lot of contradicting data and the book covers those. It's probably one of the bigger sections in the book. Yeah. One of the bigger amount of text dedicated to this reason. And you were actually out of time. There's some great pictures and some charts documenting these electromagnetic anomalies. Very, very well done. And then and there's there's more questions, but not just the 20, Fred. That, that Dr. Hughes lists a number of other questions that could be raised. Maybe he'll write another book, but there's more questions. Talks about why is this so popular a theory? The book includes a great history of where plate tectonics theory came from and why such an obvious faulty theory became the paradigm. There's a list of some alternative theories at the end, Fred, by the way, which I think is a highlight. Yeah, yeah, because Dr. Hughes goes through various other competing theories and closes with the theory that works the best, in our opinion. Of course, here at Real Science Radio, we push the hydroplate theory. And Professor Hughes uses the very last section of the book to talk about the hydroplate theory and then encourages people to get Dr. Walt Brown's book. So this thing was just fantastic. And in personal correspondence with Professor Hughes, he mentioned this could have been 25 reasons. You know, it could have been a lot more. You kind of settle in on sure. 20, 20, I guess, maybe 20 of the best arguments against plate tectonics. But as you mentioned, there's another section in the back of the book that raises, a, you know, more objections, quite a few of them, questions on, you know, more questions to think about is the name of that section. Yeah. What a the, fantastic the resource. A, a tour de force, a tour de force of just real science, which is why the book is featured here on That's Real Science right. Radio, of course, why you can get a copy at rsr.org. Just go to the store. It's a mere $999, and it's worth <laughs> way more than that. No, we're doing a great deal. It's, it's probably less than 20 bucks to get 20 reasons to question plate tectonics. A great addition if you're a homeschooler or, or, or a private school, a Christian school, a great book to get to help students understand science and the world we live in and the creation and our creator even better. Yeah, so for 
less than $1 a reason, you're going to be able to get this book. And again, I got it right here. I'm thumbing through it now. What a great resource. And I appreciate Professor Hughes sending me a kind of a pre-release copy. And I'm so glad that we're able to talk about this on the radio and promote it. And I think it's just going to be a great resource. We're going to try to get some for future conferences that we go to. And yeah, going forward, we kind of got to put a stake in the heart of plate tectonics because I think it's causing, we're missing out on a lot of time in in the world of creation because if we spend a lot of time on a theory that's wrong, we don't gain progress that we want. Same thing happened with the canopy theory. And the great irony is it was Dr. Walt Brown who questioned the canopy theory and got in trouble for it. And why really he split off, there was a split between the major creation groups. But eventually those creation groups came around to what Walt Brown had already known and was talking about was the canopy theory doesn't work. Well, we're saying plate tectonics doesn't work. And we're hoping sooner rather than later that the big creation organizations come around to that fact and stop pushing this as part of creation evidence because they use, you know, a catastrophic, a fast version of plate tectonics. But trust me, they, right, right. they support plate tectonics, but just sped up. So if plate yeah. tectonics is wrong, then catastrophic plate tectonics is wrong. Because catastrophic yes. plate tectonics relies on the science behind plate tectonics. Most of the science well, behind let's, it. Well, it changes the science well, by invoking miracles to cause the catast- CPT to happen. So, Right, right. Well, let's hope that Professor Hughes can escape the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that were brought against Dr. Brown when he questioned the canopy theory because Dr. Hughes does a great job of putting at least 20 stakes in the heart of plate tectonics, in my opinion. Yep. Well, Doug, that was great going through these. We've got some fantastic shows coming up, so stay tuned for those. We're going to talk about your paper on the moon, some really great data, but we also we're going to interview a professor, a doctor, an actual doctor. He's got a PhD, but he's an actual doctor too. And he's got something that he's been pushing that helps with our battle against cancer. So I think our oh, audience yeah. will find yes, that the Dr. Seyfried interview. Yes. The Dr. Seyfried interview. That's that coming up fa- also. Yep. And we've got more stuff coming up on artificial intelligence. Looking forward to having Daniel Hedrick back on. We've also got Brody Leach coming up at some point in the next couple months who's going to update us on the Smithsonian Hall of Origins and those phony apes they've got in there. More ape men, yes, yes. So looking forward to lots of great stuff coming up on Real Science Radio. So again, we actually are quite a bit out of time, Doug. So for Doug McBurney, this is Fred Williams of Real Science Radio. May God bless you. Yeah.